Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. This is Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ. And today I'm pleased to have as my guest, Dr. Regina Harborn, who is an Associate Professor in the Department of Physical Therapy in Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Dr. Harburn, welcome. Hi. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Today, she and I are going to talk about a really interesting perspective article that she and her colleagues published in PTJ. It's entitled, What Really Works in Intervention? Using Fidelity Measures to Support Optimal Outcomes. This is really a, a timely piece, Dr. Harborn. And so let me uh, start. Uh, you mentioned in your perspective that fidelity translates as faithfulness. And fidelity of the intervention means faithful and correct implementation of the key components of a defined rehabilitation intervention. Why do you think measuring fidelity is so important in rehabilitation research? Well, for one thing, measuring how faithful you are to your approach can really guard against deviating from the delivery of the intervention. So you may have an idea about the intervention in your head, sort of this perfect uh, intervention session, but you have to have a process to keep evaluating that throughout the time that you're delivering that intervention. Um, and it really also is important because you want to make sure that whatever you're delivering as your target intervention is different from whatever else is being delivered. It's, it is possible that you might overlap some with interventions that are being part of your comparison approach. So you really want to just drill down and make it possible to differentiate your approach from whatever you're comparing it to or whatever else might be out there. Um, and it's also really important because you need to determine what your intervention is and the fidelity of that to differentiate it from just poor effectiveness if you're comparing it to something else. You and your authors make a very convincing argument in your paper, and you just have now in answering my question. That being the case, why do you think we don't do a very good job of addressing fidelity given its importance in our research? I know in our case, we did not know how to do it um, until we were sort of faced with this large multi-site study and we had to make sure that all of the sites were doing the same thing and delivering the intervention as we wanted. But I also think it has to do with just rehabilitation research growing out of medical research and medical research sometimes focusing on a single ingredient, like a medication, you know, like some sort of ingredient within a pill. And I think in our attempts to emulate sort of the purity of that type of a research program um, and focus on that unitary thing, we thought that our interventions could be treated the same way. But um, really, our interventions are so complicated, uh, you know, how we interact with the patient or how the patient engages uh, with the therapist or how the context influences the whole rehab milieu. It really necessitates our field um, 
to approach these things differently. So um, I think my colleague who is in education, um, she does research in classrooms with young children and with families, and so they really have a similar situation. It's complicated, and she really pushed our team um, to explain. She's my co-author on this paper, Sue Sheridan. Um, she pushed our team to explain how we would deal with usual care that might overlap with our intervention, and it just took a lot of work to sort of figure this out, to develop the instrument, create a system, to maintain fidelity throughout the study. Um, so anyway, I think to answer your question more directly, I think rehabilitation research lacked fidelity measurement, partly because of a lack of awareness, but also because um, it's it's very labor-intensive and it's it's different from sort of usual medical research that focuses on a single ingredient. Well, I think it's a really good sign that we're seeing more attention focused on the intervention side of our trials. Um, I look forward to the days when we no longer see the intervention described as physical therapy in, uh, in, in, the, in the research that's being published. So uh, I'm really pleased to see, see the movement in this direction. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I struggle with is the difference between fidelity to what's actually implemented versus how well the intervention is actually reported. And you, you, in your paper, you talked about a random sample of reports that um, looked at uh, randomized controlled trials from the Pedro uh, database and found that 23%, almost a quarter, incompletely described the experimental intervention using the tidier guideline, and 75% incompletely described the control group intervention which you conclude uh, indicates incomplete fidelity. How do you know if it's uh, a problem of fidelity in the actual study versus poor reporting? Well, I suppose it could have been a reporting issue. I mean, that's a good uh, alternate explanation. But uh, fidelity measurement, as, as I mentioned, is very time and labor intensive. And so if you, as a researcher, spend all that time doing it and you think it's important that you do it, I would think you would want to report it. It's really a piece of the reporting that's related to describing your intervention, and it is reporting on the reliability of the intervention. So just as researchers have to report on the reliability of their outcome measures used in the study so that we're assured as readers and as consumers we're assured that you know they're they're reliable in their measurement of the outcomes um fidelity measures are really just essentially a reliability measure of your intervention delivery uh, it ensures that you delivered what you said you would deliver and that it was different from the comparison so um researchers have um always been urged to write for the possibility of replication so I think it's unlikely that they have just kind of done fidelity and then left it out when they reported it. And I also think it just hasn't been in the ether of, of reviewers of um, papers that come out on research. So as a reviewer, if I don't see some reliability reporting on an outcome measure, I I send it back, you know, to the authors. But now I think fidelity is getting more attention, and as people try to publish a study it's likely that the reviewers would start to say, hey, what what was your fidelity of your intervention? Tell us about that. And then we'll start to see it more in our 
in our journals. Makes sense. You're right. If you go to all the trouble, <laughs> focusing on fidelity, you're sure as heck likely to report it. Yeah, right. You mentioned elsewhere in the article that you think better fidelity will improve the uptake of clinical translation of new evidence. Well, why do you think that's the case? I get the fact that better fidelity helps us interpret the outcomes of our trials better and enables us to replicate better. I'm very interested in uptake of new evidence into practice and wonder why you think better fidelity would help us there. Well, it was since it, you know, I had mentioned before that it was a new thing for our team of very experienced pediatric PTs to create this fidelity measure from scratch, but it really forces you to identify the key ingredients of your intervention that should be distinct and allow you to differentiate your intervention from whatever else, from usual care or, you know, whatever other intervention you're comparing it to. So for us, it involved just hours and hours and days and weeks and months of watching videotape of intervention so that we could really examine the details of what therapists actually do and say during um, our study, which was an early intervention study in the home, and then make sure we could categorize that and uh, have a really good definition. But it really makes us as researchers distill the intervention down to clear, measurable things that anybody could see and identify and distinguish. And so once you've defined that super clearly, it's so much easier to teach and to have other interventionists understand the application of the approach. Because, you know, translating research to the clinic or, you know, to our practice, it can be like the telephone game, you know, where a message that you give at one end gets kind of scrambled along the way. And so the more clearly you can define it um, through this process, the more um, you can reliably give that information and disseminate it to others. So it's not vague. You have something to use during training to quantify whether the interventionist is adhering to the approach. So once you can measure your own interventionist, you can measure others with it. So really, I think it will really help in terms of translation. Yeah, I think it heightens the importance of having better fidelity. There's, there's greater payoffs down the line. Right, there's a, a lot of, right, you invest a whole lot at the beginning, but then down the line you're you're surprised that, oh, we already have this nice thing that we can use to help us translate our information and disseminate. And, you know, with digital publication, we can publish a lot more detail in supplemental material than we ever have in the past, and I think that's something that authors should keep in mind. When submitting trials, if you can't get it all in the primary report, you can certainly post it along with the article uh, on the journal website. And that's a great idea, and, and we should. You know, we should be really transparent about that. Yeah. We're trying to push that much more in PTJ and encouraging our authors to do that. It it takes a while uh, for people to get used to that because we used to be constrained by paper. Right. And that's no longer the case. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you talk about the gap between the intended intervention and what was actually delivered, and you refer to it as type 3 error. How prevalent is this type 3 error in rehabilitation research? Do you have a sense of that? Well, I, I don't have actual numbers for you, but I have 
you know, an educated guess that it's that it's very prevalent. Um, and I, I actually think it can help explain the wide variability of results that we see when we are studying, you know, the effectiveness of intervention. So um, in a recent systematic review that I helped out with um, for early intervention for infants with CP, we looked at hundreds of papers, and there was not one that reported fidelity. And there's another one that we re referenced in our prospective paper here that was in um, musculoskeletal care about manual therapy to the knee, and they had almost 3,000 studies, and only four had adequate fidelity measures. So I think it's fairly likely with those kind of numbers that type 3 error could be occurring. So that means if they have positive findings, that their findings might or might not be due to their treatment, or conversely, if they find no difference between their interventions, it might be that they didn't differentiate their intervention enough, and some of the ingredients um, might be being delivered by the alternate therapy. Anyway, it's just very confounding, type 3 error, so it just confuses yeah. our implications that we have. It was sobering to me as a researcher to read about the five measurable dimensions of fidelity. You talked about adherence and dosage. Those are the two that I'm most familiar with. But then you go on and talk about needing to measure quality of the intervention delivery, participant responsiveness, and then program differentiation. I think you've just described program differentiation to make sure your experimental intervention is different than the control. Is that what you mean? Right, yes. Uh -huh. And the quality of the intervention delivery is kind of the gap between the intended and the actual. Correct? Mm -hmm. or, or the, yeah. What's yeah. participant responsiveness? Well, so we're dealing with patients, and this actually was brought home to me years ago when um, – in my PhD program when one of my um, instructors was telling me about her son who um, had some type of a musculoskeletal injury. They went to physical therapy, and her son did not like the physical therapist. He didn't like whatever was happening. He didn't like his personality, something, and he wouldn't go. He wouldn't do the exercises. He wouldn't do anything. And so they went to a different therapist, and that therapist somehow approached this child differently, and totally he totally bought into the intervention. And so it's got me thinking, oh, my goodness, there's so much complexity to what we bring to our interventions. It's not just what we do. It's how we interact with our patients and how we understand the context that they live in, the world that they live in, how we understand what they value. And so um, that's, that's a qualitative thing uh, that you have to sort of measure as you're going through. It's not just all black and white. It's this interaction between the patients. So it isn't really just all those key ingredients. It is this sort of overall gestalt that you get um, when you are looking at the interaction um, yeah. and how the participant responds, responds to you. Yeah. yeah, those pesky patients. <laughs> and pesky people, right? Everybody interacts in different ways. How, how do we as investigators measure that? You mentioned your multi-center trial. How right. did you get a handle on participant responsiveness? Separate, I take it it's separate from adherence. It is separate from adherence, um, and it is a gestalt um, evaluation. But it is important to um, 
to view a behavior when or listen to a behavior or both if you can and we videotaped so we videotaped the whole session um three times for each child and and therapist pairing and then um when we looked at these videotapes which are about almost an hour long every 10 minutes we had a likert type scale which was just basically you know is it an adequate less than adequate better than adequate on whatever we were measuring so for example um to describe quality of interaction we had a definition that said High rating on this item means the therapist provides ample opportunities for collaboration, initiates meaningful conversations, doesn't get interrupted, focused on the child and parent, effective in initiating discussions. I mean, these definitions are long, <laughs> but, you know, this is what a high rating means, and then this is what an wow. adequate rating means, and then this is what a not adequate. Yeah, so it, it's very Likert scale, but it still has a very complex um, description for how you would categorize that behavior. Now, who does this assessment and categorization? Is it analogous to outcome measurement where you've got blinded assessors? Yes, actually it is. It's it's the same. Yeah. Um, so it's one of the researchers because you have to be trained to do it and you have to have more than one person trained because you have to be reliable in giving that score. So yeah. um, it's very labor-intensive. Mm-hmm. Which leads me to my last question. Do you have a sense of the cost of doing fidelity the right way? Yeah, it costs a lot. <laughs> it, it's figured, costly. Yeah. It, yeah, it's costly in terms of time because, and then that translates, of course, to dollars because someone has to do this coding, and plus you have to collect the data. And you have to use it along the way, so it's not something you can just sort of wait until the end. You have to use it to monitor your intervention, but you also use it in the end to analyze it in addition to your outcomes. So it's a, it's basically another outcome or set of outcomes that you have to, to measure, and that adds uh, people and time and money. On the other hand, it's really money well spent because, you know, would we rather not use a fidelity measure and then have spent – the few research dollars that we have on something that can't give us reliable results, it would be, you know, just as bad as having very unreliable outcome measures. So I think it adds to the expense, but it gives us better evidence in the long term, and it should really help our field to focus on important factors that directly address outcomes, um, either positive or negative. And there are also, I forgot to mention about um, some of these fidelity numbers that you get, um, if you have a good statistician um, and you have sort of an overlap between your intervention that you're doing and the comparison, um, the statistician can can sort of help balance your groups out by adding sort of a covariate, getting a little complicated with the stats here, but, you know, onto each child and say, well, this child had the other treatment, but that other treatment was a whole lot like our treatment. So you get this nuanced approach to your comparison groups. Well, it doesn't take much to convince me of the value, and I really look forward to seeing more emphasis on this uh, going forward. Uh, I want to thank you, Dr. Hardwood, for taking the time today to, to talk about your perspective article with me. I really enjoyed it, and I want to encourage uh, PTJ uh, listeners to take a look at the article uh, 
and I think you will find it really most uh, informative. Thanks for taking the time. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. 